This is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, building futures close to home at campuses in Morgantown, Kaiser, and Beckley. Information at wvu.edu. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com. Good evening from Charleston, I'm Eric Douglas. It's day 52 of the 60-day legislative session and we've seen a week full of activity, split floor sessions, committees meeting twice a day leading up to crossover day. That's day 50 when all bills must make it out of the House of Origin if they are to continue on through the legislative process. This rule affects all bills except for the budget bill and supplementary appropriations bills. Tonight we'll focus on a handful of bills that have garnered significant attention and sparked heated debate. We get a sample of that as we begin with education reporter Liz McCormick on floor action. In the rush up to crossover day, the Senate and House both approved legislation in their respective chambers related to K-12 and higher education, including in the Senate, Senate Bill 498, titled the Anti-Racism Act of 2022. It's widely regarded as a bill denouncing critical race theory, or CRT. The bill would prohibit teachers in K-12 or higher education institutions from teaching that one race is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, or that people should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment because of their race. The bill also creates a reporting mechanism to the Department of Education and the Higher Education Policy Commission for alleged violations. This, despite West Virginia Department of Education officials testifying before lawmakers that they have had no instances of such such lessons taught in West Virginia. Opponents of Senate Bill 498 and bills like it around the country see it as a way to limit meaningful discussions in classrooms about systemic racism and implicit bias. Senator Owens Brown is a Democrat from Ohio County, a former president of the West Virginia NAACP, and the only black lawmaker in the state Senate. You know, one thing I did notice in 2020 after George Floyd was killed. I noticed people across the country coming together, white Americans, black Americans, uh, Asian, uh, Hispanic American, all in arms marching together, you know, protesting uh, inhumanity that was, had happened. They saw themselves as one. But then it looked like people were coming together. Then all of a sudden I see CRT being thrown out there in a debate to, again, trying to divide people. And this is what is it's happening. CRT was dormant, has told people over and over it's not in the public schools. Everybody over there has a higher, high degree, college degree on the other side, and it's been told to you over and over again that it wasn't taught in the public school, but here we are still trying to say it's been inserted into the public schools for political purposes and for political gain, and that is not right. 
Brown also argues the bill creates undue stress on educators who are now afraid to have honest discussions on American history. And he reiterated that there's no evidence that any teacher in West Virginia is teaching that one race is superior to another. Senator Amy Grady is a Republican from Mason County and a public school teacher. She spoke in support of the bill. She says students should not be taught that because of their race, they are privileged, pointing to her own students. Many of them come from generations of poverty, generations. Some of them live in single wide trailers with holes in the floor, holes in the floor, no heat, no water, definitely food insecurity. To tell those kids that they have a leg up in society because of their race is doing them a great disservice. They don't have a leg up in society. No more than skin color holds somebody down. We have to make sure we are telling our kids they can reach the stars. Senate Education Chair Patricia Rucker and the lead sponsor of Senate Bill 498 says the bill will protect teachers, reassure parents, and will not hinder freedom of speech. And you absolutely can teach what has happened in history, good and bad, without making an individual feel that they are personally responsible for what happened in history. Am I supposed to be held responsible? for that my husband's family over 200 years ago owned slaves? Should I feel guilty about it? Wasn't even here. This is what's wrong. This is what we're trying to make certain. Debate on Senate Bill 498 went on for more than an hour and passed mostly along party lines with one Republican, Senator Bill Hamilton from Upshur County, voting against the bill. It now awaits consideration in the House Education Committee. Staying with the House, House Bill 4071 creates the Public School Health Rights Act and would prohibit K-12 schools and public officials from forcing students to wear masks. The bill also says that students no longer have to quarantine when exposed to COVID-19 unless they get a positive test. Delegate Sean Hornbuckle, a Democrat from Cabell County and the minority chair of House Education, spoke against the bill, saying it takes away the ability for schools to require masks if their county turns red on DHHR's COVID-19 risk map. If there is a situation where it is red and it is imminent that we are going to spread not just the virus, but potentially a lot of death, I think that it should be up to the local to the local school boards, the local health boards, to be able to make that determination, not us. Shouldn't be a blanket. Delegate Jordan Maynard, a Republican from Raleigh County, says he introduced the bill because his constituents asked for it. They told me, they said, Jordan, we're having a hard time teaching what we need to teach with these masks on. Our students are not learning as well with these masks on. And quite frankly, they told me, it's pretty hypocritical that we're letting folks tackle each other on the football field, box each other out in a basketball court, and let fans roam the stands with no masks on at school events. House Bill 4071 passed 80 to 16 with several Democrats voting in favor. The bill now awaits consideration in Senate education. For the legislature today, I'm Liz McCormick. West Virginia has one of the highest rates of children living in foster care or in group homes but lawmakers say the infrastructure to take care of them is broken. One set of proposals to fix the problem in the state is House Bill 4344. It passed the House of Delegates with bipartisan support and is now in the Health and Human Resources Committee in the Senate. June Leffler spoke with Bureau of Social Services Commissioner Jeff Pack to discuss some of the problems the agency is facing. 
Commissioner Peck, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. You've had concerns with the state's foster care system for years, first as a lawmaker and now as the head of the agency that oversees the welfare of our children. Can you describe the hardships these kids are facing and anyone that else that's touched by the system? And what more have you learned about this issue as commissioner that you think lawmakers should be aware of? Well, first and foremost, I don't think I had a, an accurate appreciation of the dedication of our staff. These folks uh, go out and see things that, that, that you and I um, couldn't imagine. And they do it daily, um, and, and, and they do it with love, and they do it with compassion. Um, I think that's first and foremost. Um, the, the, the children that, that this system touches, um, many are the victims of abuse and neglect, and that's not something that a lot of people like to think about. But um, we're tasked with going in and helping these kids and finding appropriate services for them helping their family stay together if possible, and if not, uh, we're tasked with finding appropriate placements for them. And there is at least one legislative solution um, that's being presented this session, that's House Bill 4344. You, can you describe what's in this bill and if you support it, and do you think it will solve anything? <clears throat> well, House Bill 40, uh, 4344 is the result of the House Committee on Health and Human Resources. Um, they made uh, foster care a priority, and, and they've engaged in stakeholder meetings with a variety of individuals um, that are touched by the system as well as the department. This bill does a number of things. Um, first, it, it includes a 15% um, a raise for all of our frontline staff who deal with children and vulnerable adults. Um, it codifies who can participate in the MDT process. It allows us to... Um, engage in a study of our centralized intake process, which is where uh, all of our calls come in to report abuse and neglect. And it also makes um, the sharing of information easier amongst agencies so that um, we can more rapidly provide the appropriate supports for families that are, that are in trauma and placement for children. And can you tell me um, exactly what that would fix? Well, uh, the goal of the salaries is, is to fix our, our struggling workforce. Um, <clears throat> the department's no different than, than any other um, state agency or, or private enterprise in the state. Everyone's struggling for staffing. And um, because of the often life and death uh, situations that we're faced with, it's important that we have a workforce that can respond and respond quickly uh, to make sure that we're taking care of the, the folks that we're charged with. And you also mentioned um, changes to the intake process. Um, what exactly would this bill do and, and how would that help? Well, <clears throat> it wouldn't change the intake process, um, but it, it would allow us the opportunity to, to contract with a third party uh, that's outside of the agency to come in and look and make sure that all of our practices are um, best practices to make sure that we're operating as efficiently as we could. Sometimes it's beneficial to have an outside set of eyes come in and look at things um, and, and see it from a different perspective. And I guess at that beginning level with the intake process, you know, what what are the issues that we have? Well, we struggle with staffing there as, as well. So um, <clears throat> how the intake process works is if someone believes a child is, is being abused or neglected, or an adult for that matter, um, 
they call the hotline. They speak to a social worker who asks them some um, pertinent questions, and um, once those questions are answered, then then a review process happens with supervisors, and they determine whether or not they believe that this is a valid uh, report of abuse and neglect. If it is, then that's sent out to our district offices, in which case they would uh, go out and investigate those. Okay. Yeah, so a third party would just be another set of eyes to yes. see how this is running. Yes. Thank you. Uh, what are the biggest challenges around foster care right now? And assuming that this bill passes, uh, what are the next steps the lawmakers and your agency need to take? Um, <clears throat> well, again, it, uh, much of this comes back to our workforce. Um, we need to, to be able to um, recruit and retain uh, the highest quality workforce we can. This isn't an easy job, as I've said. Um, since I've been commissioner for the last uh, nearly seven months, I've uh, tried to take as much time as I can to go out and visit the district offices and just spend time with them, not for any particular reason. But um, I have found the opportunity to go out and ride with CPS workers and uh, APS workers and adult service workers just to see what their life is like and what it is that they deal with. So um, uh, it, it would be very difficult to accomplish anything um, beyond what we're accomplishing now until we can stabilize our workforce. So stabilizing the workforce means, you know, offering these higher wages, ensuring that um, the positions are filled with competent people. That's correct. We 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 suffer from um, from a, a great degree of turnover, uh, and when that happens, we're, we've spent a lot of time and resources in training people, and and um, and once we get them trained, we need them to stay and 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 help us solve the problems that we're facing. And is there um, a certain percentage of vacancies that you have? Yes, it's about 30% statewide in CPS. And how does that impact the workers that are there? Well, it increases their caseload. So every time someone works, whatever caseload they were carrying gets distributed amongst the, the remaining workers. So if if one worker or two re workers leave, that's a, a drastic um, increase in the workload of everybody else that remains. And I'm sure it's different for everybody, but what could a typical caseload look like? Well, it varies by county, and it varies um, <clears throat> by the amount of, uh, of of workload that happens to be in that county. Um, some counties have uh, higher caseloads than others, just um, based on demographics, perhaps. But um, um, th the goal is to get between 12 and 15 cases per worker. Um, some counties are, are within that range, and some, some counties are higher, but it, it just varies uh, from county to county. And this is my last question, Commissioner Peck. What other bills or legislative issues are you following this session that would impact your work um, or the well-being of our children and adults? Uh, one of the bills that we're following is Senate Bill 274, and it uh, re relates to the allocation of CPS workers across the state. So each county is allocated um, a certain number of workers based on their historical caseload. Um, this would just codify that, that the reallocation would happen every year, and we would be required to report to the Legislative Oversight Commission on Health and Human Resources accountability on what formula we use to arrive at that yearly. And uh, do you support that legislation? I do. Okay. Commissioner Jeff Peck of the state's Bureau for Social Services, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. House Bill 4840 would have made changes to state mine safety law. 
It generated a backlash from Democrats, coal miners, and their supporters who said it would weaken mine safety. There was a public hearing earlier this week. Only one person spoke in favor of the bill. This bill does not result in fewer mine visits. Curtis Tate spoke with Greg Norman, who has decades of experience in mining and mine safety. Norman was one of dozens of miners and their allies who lobbied lawmakers against the bill, which appears to be dead. Today we welcome Greg Norman, a former miner and state mine safety inspector, to talk about House Bill 4840. Uh, Greg, the state of West Virginia and the federal government both have mine inspection programs. Uh, can you talk to us about why both are needed? West Virginia has uh, led, led the mine industry for years for the regulations they've promulgated. Uh, the, the, every every uh, uh, rule that's been promulgated since uh, Aracama, which that was about 12 years ago, disaster if you remember it, and uh, Sago and UBB Upper Big Branch. And then uh, uh, pretty much MSHA has copied the bill, copied the laws that we, that we the, uh, promulgated. Sorry, MSHA is the federal agency. Yes, MSHA's for, I'm sorry, MSHA's federal agency. But there's no doubt we need both the agencies. Last year we had four fatalities and we've already had two this year. And if, and if I could, if I go any farther, I want to send my thoughts and prayers out to uh, uh, Stephen Hively's family. I've talked to Carla Hively myself and and uh, that's the minor we lost on Monday. In McDowell 28th, County. In McDowell County, uh, Ramico Mines, uh, Ramico Company Berwyn Mines. Uh, but uh, we do different things. Some things we do are alike, but uh, we have other laws that we pass that, uh, and, and we try not to, uh, I guess the word is uh, uh, double dip or try to, if it ends to write something, we don't try to come right in behind them and write the same exact violation. Uh, there's no doubt we need both agencies. So getting to, to some of the, the, the various things that this bill um, proposed to do, why is it important for inspectors to be able to show up unannounced? Underground mining and surface mining is, is uh, uh, to show up unannounced. Uh, well, I guess it's the it's the it's the it's the other uh, for us to be able to announce that we're coming. You know, when you show up at a, at, a, at an operation, even a surface job or underground, you could be miles away from where the workplace is. So if we show up at a, at a mine and it's three miles underground, and time we get to the section where the men are working, it could be an hour or two hours. Uh, at least an hour. Uh, sometimes, you know, it might be 30 minutes, but, you know, if they're up there uh, mining without ventilation or uh, mining with a piece of equipment that needs to be took out of service, they can take out all that out. They can repair all that before we arrive on the section. Well, uh, how effective are fines as enforcement tools? The fines, I'll give you some numbers real quick. Uh, in 2021, according to Miners Health and Safety and Training's uh, uh, annual report. Uh, they issued a little over $900,000 in fines. By the time they was reduced and worked out through uh, appeals and, and uh, things, they end up uh, receiving about 628000 That's state. I know one mine here in West Virginia, and, and I've got all the paperwork to prove it. In two months, this one mine with about 64 people working at it, MSHA, which is a federal uh, mining, uh, inspectors, uh, that fines were up to $650,000. So with the state, 
maybe it is about the money with the uh, uh, federal, but with us, if we go in there and we're it's inspecting in mines and we find a piece of equipment, it's really not about the fine. It's that we can take it out of service or we can make them repair it. And if they don't get it repaired because we have enforcement, we can write a failure to abate and put an order on it and they can't run it anymore. I don't think it's really about the assessment. I think it's the power uh, uh, to be able to issue a fine. And if they don't, if they don't correct the hazard, you know, we can take it out of service. And it sounds, one like, good it, example it, it sounds like that, that it could cost them um, even if they don't actually pay a penalty. Right, right. That, you know, it's taking the equipment out of service, but it's you know, a good example is, you know, you know, they're saying that uh, we're not needed. Uh, you know, what if the, uh, what if a uh, uh, police on a highway could only write you a warning ticket? Well, we'd be stacking people up beside the roads and be getting killed. In, in terms of training, what would new miners miss if their training time were cut in half, as this proposes to do? You know, they say that that we need to be more proactive. Uh, the, that when I say, hey, I, I'm previously previously the director of, of miners health safety and training for two years, and I served as a uh, deputy director for four years, and I got 42 total um, mining experience. And they're saying that miners health is not proactive. In 2021, state inspectors done the, over 52,000 safety contacts. And the safety contact is about, if I go to a working section and somebody's operating a piece of equipment, I go up there and observe them and see if they're operating the proper way, doing it by plan and doing it by law. And some of those are done on the surface, some of them's done underground, some of them's done in classroom sessions and retraining. 52, uh, those 52,000 safety contacts I just explained, 42,000 of them were on the work, it was uh, uh, on the job site. So Miner's Health is proactive. Miner Health already does a lot of training. Uh, actually, we do more training than IMSA does. When I say we, I'm sorry, Miner's Health. Right. Uh, can you describe what happened last week when the details of House Bill 4840 came to light and who was involved in, in mobilizing the reaction? Well, uh, uh, Mr. Steele, I, I still get Steele, and uh, Burke Houser, I can't name everyone that was on the uh, bill, but it didn't go through the regular process of, uh, in legislation. I've lobbied down there for 30 years. You know, it come right out of government org and went straight to the floor. Even some of the Democrats that was in the committee meeting at the uh, government organ meeting, they weren't even allowed to ask questions. It didn't go through the industrial committee, it didn't go through judicial, it didn't get go through, through finance. They just, they tried to backdoor it and, and put it in there. What tipped the scales against it? I really think that uh, it was the public, you know, pushing back on it. Uh, definitely the United Mine Workers. Uh, they had, uh, uh, I'm retired United Mine Workers. They had uh, like 17 workers was there Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday from time session open to a closed. We had, they had some staff people. We had retired coal miners down there. I was down there myself for three days. And then on Wednesday, uh, we thought we had enough to uh, stop it. Uh, and uh, it tipped on us and we did. So, I, and I also want to thank the bipartisan uh, uh to try to get this bill stopped, Democrats, Republicans, on the Senate side, we had we had people from the Senate come over and speak uh, against the bill. We had some that spoke for the bill, but uh, you know, without the Republicans, we couldn't have stopped it. 
Uh, well, as you mentioned before, a coal miner was killed in McDowell County on Monday. Another one was killed in southwest Pennsylvania yesterday. Uh, did these tragedies help raise the awareness of these issues? You know, that really, you know, that's a good thing you brought that up because uh, I heard Burkhauser say the other night that we were trying to use that because we had a prayer afterwards. After we had the public hearing on Monday, uh, everybody we had there that night, we had, we, we, we gathered out in, in, the, in the halls and, and we had prayer. And he, I guess they were letting on like we were using that. Uh, I, think, I, I think that it helped bring awareness to it because they were in the middle of uh, uh, not cutting mine safety or uh, trying to prove it, you know, trying to make it better. That's what they said. This is a mine safety deal, but uh, it would actually just destroy mine safety in West Virginia. It did help. It, it did help some, but I, I, you know, I think there was enough pushback from the public, and the UMWA, and the uh, we even had uh, inspectors there from the agency. We even had an MCHA retired inspector coming to vote uh, against this deal. Well, Greg Norman, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. All right, thank you. Next week is the final week of this regular legislative session. Everything has to be wrapped up by Saturday night at midnight. On our final show, I'll be talking with news reporters from other news organizations to get their take on the session and the bills and stories they were watching. Next Saturday, we'll also be broadcasting floor sessions all day on the West Virginia Channel. On Saturday night, we'll be on the air for the final hours of the legislature, live from the Capitol from 8 p.m. until midnight when the chambers close business. I'm Eric Douglas. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us and have a great weekend.